You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. wet uh, evening, um, but uh, Colin Buchanan uh, is a man who needs no introduction uh, except to say uh, uh, married father of two. Uh, his last uh, full-time gig uh, with the Church of England was in the diocese in, uh, uh, in South London in, where he was the Bishop of Woolwich and uh, now resides in Leeds. Uh, but tonight he's going to talk about uh, a paper that he wrote what did Cranmer think he was doing? And, uh, and that really has been, uh, as he's even admitted, his signature work. Uh, although at the time, like most great things, you didn't know that it would be that. Uh, but looking forward to having you here, and uh, God bless you. Let's have a word of prayer before we begin. The Lord be with you. God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing Colin to us. Uh, we pray that you would speak through him tonight, that uh, we would not so much uh, rest in centuries past, uh, but that we might remember whose shoulders we stand upon as we look to you, Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I'm delighted to be with you, um, and uh, very happy to be invited, asked to speak about Cranmer <coughs> in Cranmer Hall, which uh, seems very appropriate, and because I have written on him, <coughs> though a large amount of my own actual work in liturgy has been in terms of revising the liturgy within the Church of England today uh, as much as trying to get the right picture of what happened at the Reformation time. And you already picked up, I think, that I'm... Uh, <laughs> my first calling in life is to be a bookseller. The rest is just a front. Uh, and and, and, and uh, insofar as American Airlines would allow me, I have bought my bookstore with me. Um, and... Um, in particular, of course, the, the title you begin tonight, What Did Cranmer Think He Was Doing, is in a booklet on the bookstall. Um, Andrew pinched some of them for the folk from Beeson who were there at lunch today, so there aren't enough for everybody here, so you'll have to elbow each other to get one. But alongside that, I also produced a complete set of the texts of the Eucharist of Edward VI reign, and those are being passed around to you at the moment, I hope. They're, the, they're my old-fashioned... The uh, second millennium equivalent of using PowerPoint or something like that is a book. And um, I, I did my own transcribing of stuff in the old British Library to produce this, and it puts together the first work of Cranmer on liturgical revision uh, on the Eucharist. That is the 1548 Order of the Communion. I'll come and tell you a bit more about that. But that's the first two pages or so here. Then the 1549, and then the 1552 and the texts are there entire. And I don't think there's anywhere else in the world where you can get them together, at least in cheap format. Um, so, you, so you're invited to use them carefully tonight, um, but if you want to abuse them, you'll have to buy them. <laughs> now, where do we go from there? Um, I was talking at lunchtime about the Reformation. Uh, 1066 and all that is that a title that doesn't mean anything to you and instead having asked you a question I invite you to pitch in at any point if, you, if you're not understanding what I'm saying or you want me to elaborate a bit more or you want to, or you want to refute me 
then say so quick. Don't let's just leave it to the end and then try and recapture what went wrong during it. You know, I don't mind how slowly we go, as long as we can actually possess the ground we're going over. Anyway, um, Henry VIII wanted a, a divorce, so they say, and that was the Reformation. It wasn't quite like that. Um, first of all, he didn't want a divorce. He wanted a nullity. Uh, and, and, and he got the right opinions he wanted from various experts in universities of the continent and Thomas Cranmer. And Thomas Cranmer became his favourite. And by, again, the stroke of luck or providence, his Archbishop of Canterbury died in, 1830, in, in 1532, and he made Cranmer Archbishop of Canterbury, <clears throat> just the very moment of which the Parliament was putting through the acts that severed the life of the Church of England from the Pope of Rome. And you may know that to this day, bishops are appointed in England for, of the, from the legislation of Henry VIII, where the monarch took the responsibility for nominating diocesan bishops. And, and although nowadays monarchs, as far as we know, don't exercise their own discretion, they do what they're told by prime ministers, um, that is still that legislation that separated the appointment from the Pope to the monarch that has given us the independence of the Church of England as the Church in England from that time. Now, Henry VIII took power over the Church of England, but he didn't really change the worship. There was this kind of Henrician Catholicism that ran from 1534 through to his death in 1547, <coughs> in which the, the ruder commentators have said he made it up as he went along. <coughs> Sometimes it suited him to abolish masses for the dead because he wanted to take the money that had been put in trust for it. <coughs> At other times, he was more reactionary. He, he, he abolished the monasteries. <coughs> Again, his commissioners said they were absolutely corrupt and full of immorality. But another view has been that he wanted the money. Uh, and you pay your money, your own money and take your choice in those sort of things. But by the time Henry VIII died <coughs> in 1547, you had one or two real hints of change. The Bible was available in English. You weren't now going to be persecuted for having an English Bible and it was supposed to be set up in every church for people to read. There had been an, a litany in English. Henry going off to war in, in France asked the Archbishop to produce a form of prayers and he produced it in English. And that must have been very strange on their ears. But basically, they were waiting for Henry to go. And when Henry went, of course, he was succeeded by his son, Edward, <coughs> who was nine years... <coughs> sorry, he was nine years of age when he succeeded, so the government was in the hands of a council. And Cranmer was a key person on that council. And so now the, the folk who had the power on the in the name of the king also were wanting to change the way the Church of England acted. It's quite possible that Cranmer came to a reformed mind about the Eucharist by slow stages. There's a book by Peter Newman Brooks about that. Um, and he himself says that he was finally persuaded by his own chaplain, Ridley. R Ridley was the intellectual, though Cranmer himself had been a don, and... Um, uh, and he comes to a reformed mind at almost the same point at which he gains power. But in respect of that, his first concern 
is that people should worship in their own tongue. So in 1547, you have the monarch issuing injunctions, or in the name of the monarch, um, saying that from now on the Bible is to be read in English. So the mass would continue, wasn't to be changed, but the epistle and gospel would be read in English from it. So there was, so was a real sign of things that were coming. And in the autumn of 1547, you have the act for receiving communion in both kinds. This is a very interesting feature of the Reformation across the whole continent. The people read the scriptures. Ah, oh, Jesus said, all of you drink of this. And the Pope has forbidden it for 300 years. Which is right? Well, we think Jesus might be. Uh, and, and, and the restoration of the cup to the laity was a very early stage in the Reformation in every country. And so you get an act for receiving communion in both kinds, which sort of hopes that people will start receiving every Sunday. It didn't actually work out like that, but it, but it kind of hints that the wicked clergy have been holding communion back from the people, whereas in fact, of course, the culture was they were schooled only to receive communion once a year at Easter, um, after some Lenten disciplines and probably confession, um, and the idea that you receive every week was not going to come to them by law. Um, and, and so they were backing a loser in that one. But the presupposition of the new act is they need to receive communion and receive it in both kinds. And that brings us to the very beginning of this, because they make provision for the lay people to receive communion and in both kinds. And if you look at on, on page three, this is the order of the communion, which is a very short insert into the Latin Mass, which was still continuing. There's one thing missing from it, which is there was a <coughs> an introduction to it, in which in which <coughs> Edward is. <laughs> supposed to be saying though I don't suppose he drafted it that um, we are going to pursue change stage by stage we wouldn't have anyone think we went up to it we went, we're only going a short way just going a short way to start with it'll come stage by stage and you're not to get ahead of us and you're not to stay behind us <laughs> we're all going to march together on my orders so here is, the, here is the first stage, the order of the communion, and it's, it's um, the first two pages are exhortations um, about being prepared for communion. You're not to receive it unworthy. You'll see in the middle of page three. Uh, you've all got one in front of you. Um, and, um, and then you, it comes over to the point... Uh, where they're warned to depart, bottom of page four, open blasphemers and adulterers, got them there. Uh, they're not to hang around and, and kid themselves. Um, and then you get to the text which you may recognize. Top of page five, <clears throat> you that do truly and earnestly repent you of your sins and offenses committed to Almighty God, and, <clears throat> and be in love and charity with your neighbours and tend to lead a new life and heartily to follow the commandments of God and to walk from henceforth in his holy ways draw near and take his holy sacrament to your comfort and make your humble confession to almighty God and to this holy church here gathered together in his name meekly kneeling upon your knees 
and then you've got the confession which passed through largely in the same text into our prayer books and then an absolution our blessed Lord who left power to his church to absolve penitent sinners from their sins and to restore them to the grace of the Heavenly Father such as truly believe in Christ have mercy upon you and then the comfortable words from, do you have those in America? Uh, from, from from Holy Scripture come unto me all that travel and are heavy laden uh, this is a true saying and so on and, and that is to reinforce the absolution and then finally over the page the last stage of, of approach to the table we do not presume to come to this thy table O merciful Lord trusting in our own righteousness but in thy manifold and great mercies and that you will also have come across and it's run down time and this is its point of origin it's Cranmer's own composition with the story of the Syrophoenician woman and the crumbs under the table that the dogs eat uh, be worked into a, a text of humble access as it's been called and then a distribution of both bread and cup in both um, to, to the laity with English words of administration and finally uh, an English language blessing um, for their dismissal um, and I could stay a bit on the on the um, rubrics but that is the first stage we are going to use English we're going to be receiving communion of both kinds and all as it were the central features of the mass they've been held over to be dealt with more fully when we've done a, 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 the well-rounded job that's coming and in, in 1548 uh, they were busy writing a complete new prayer book all the different texts of the uh, uh, of the pre-reformation church were all being brought together into a single prayer book the daily offices the psalmody the eucharist the occasional offices of baptism um, visitation of the sick uh, burial, marriage uh, they, they, were, they were all separate books before are now being brought together in one book in English and it's a massive undertaking uh, and, and there was a conference in Chertsey in September 1548 at which well in which they all agreed it I think <coughs> Cran <coughs> Cranmer put it in front of them and um, produced a revolver or something like it and put it on the table and said now are we in favour of this or not <laughs> um, the, the, um, the top down management was very strongly uh, viewed um, we can just be glad that it was um, godly things that they were enforcing but the, the style doesn't appeal terribly nowadays um, and so you get on the Whit Sunday in 1549 the whole new book has to be used. Um, the work copies available in print shortly before the um, Whit Sunday. There was, a, in order to make sure they got distributed, each parish would probably only have one. They were big and weighty, and they cost money. Uh, they cost about the same as a um, farm labourer's wages for a week. Um, and of course, a large number of the people were illiterate anyway it wasn't a book you were putting into everybody's hands it's a book it's a text which the minister is going to read and they are go along with it and if you go back and look at the 39 articles you'll find it, it says you're not to address the people in a language they don't understand it doesn't um, 
which of course it takes from 1 Corinthians 14, it, it, it doesn't stop to say that they mustn't be using uh, uh, um, a foreign language because they weren't expecting the lay people actually to say very much at all. Uh, and we shouldn't kid ourselves that this was a congregational exercise. It was a ministerial one. And to this day, um, I have, when I was a curate, for instance, using, using our 1662 book, um, up behind a large medieval screen, if you please, in the least end of a church with holy Protestant words, with actually no indication that well, I couldn't see the congregation because of the screen, no indication whether they're still there or not because they weren't saying anything. <laughs> um, so we have to be realistic about that. So how does he go about the 1549 book? And it looks as though he sat down with the Roman mass of the time and he, in a sense, produced the English equivalent from his point of view, decontaminating those parts of the doctrine which he, which he thought were unacceptable. And Cranmer wrote five volumes of disputation about the Eucharist over against Stephen Gardner, the Bishop of Winchester, um, after this, but he, but he makes it very clear indeed that this was in his mind at the time. The real doctrines that they are worried about are one, transubstantiation, which of course involves not only this extraordinary miracle of which the bread and wine ceased to be bread and wine um, and um, and became an object of adoration and mass sacrifice in which you actually, putting it crudely, you were offering the sacrifice of Christ to adding value to it really in order to gain certain things from God. So you might be offering the mass for the weather and you're certainly offering masses for the dead to help them through the pains of purgatory. Um, and all that is built into the, the uh, Serum Mass, the, the Pre-Reformation Mass, which Cranmer is revising. But, but having said that, his shape is the same as it was before. So if you look at it, you, you've got um, the, the... And I'll try and run down it easily with you. Uh, on page 7... The um, opening, it says you open with the Lord's Prayer. You, you see the last rubric there says the Lord's Prayer with this collect, and then, and then the collect for purity, which had been a priest's preparation in the vestry previously, and which he rewrote for the congregation, and which has again had a very enduring life in Anglicanism. Uh, then the um, Kyrie's, Glory be to God on high. Uh, this exactly matches the Roman pattern. And then um, over the page, you've got the actual text of the glory. High. Then in the middle of page eight, you get his own particular edition, which is, of course, a prayer for the king's majesty. <laughs> and praying for the king was, was vital. And it's one of the very few places where the pre president of the right has a choice. You can take one over the other. Um, they're very strongly establishment prayers. In other words, they believe the nation is the church over which the king is ruling and he is, has the trusteeship of taking care of God's people because he's king. And you may like to reflect on that. And then you have the epistle and gospel, again as in uh, Rome. You have the creed, now in English. Uh, and you have after the creed a sermon. Can you see halfway down page nine? Now that would be new. Um, and um, 
in, in fact, Cranmer issued a, a book of homilies uh, because they didn't trust quite a lot of the people to preach. Uh, the folk had been ordained several years and were thoroughly versed in Romanism. You didn't want them to preach, so they were bidden to, to read the homilies. And the book of homilies is very much reformed doctrine uh, and has its own place actually in the 39 articles. So in a, in a second-hand kind of way, we, um, those of us who have the articles anywhere in our constitution uh, are, are sort of committed to the homilies. But if you read Cranmer wrote the first homily on the reading of Holy Scripture, for instance, it is an extremely good statement of, of Protestant belief inculcating the new religion, if you like, into the people if they heard it and followed it. We don't know how much it actually was used, but you can see the intention there, um, a sermon or homily, um, and the difference there is the sermon you've made up yourself, the homily you've read out of the book. And then uh, the, the exhortations which have been first tried out in 1548, they're carried through here um, with warnings uh, um, to the wicked and so on. And um, and then you get the offertory. Now look in the middle of page 11, you have the offertory. And let me ask you, what is an offertory? What happens at an offertory? What do you mean use the word offertory for? Any offers? Can't hear? I'm sorry, I'm still not hearing you. I should have my hearing aids. I'm sorry. Passing the plate. Pass the plate to take up collection of money. Yeah, collection of money, right, yes. Is that any, any other meanings? Well, offertories be usually used in Catholic circles to mean the preparation of the elements, whether you have a collection of money or not. And it belongs, if you like, with the sacramental part of the service. And what Cranmer has done is taken the word and turned it into a collection of money. <laughs> and, and you see it here, about letting your light so shine be before men, and let not, lay not up yourselves treasures upon earth, and it's nothing about the bread and wine. So yes, it, it conforms to your understanding, but it isn't the concern. If you ask um, around the country, you may very well find that offertory means the preparation of the bread and wine, irrespective of whether you take up a collection or not. Um, and, 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 but he's got this concept of an offertory and you've got a wonderful description in the middle of page 12 as to how the offertory was done which is the people trooped up to the east end where the poor man's box was standing beside the high altar and you dropped your money into the poor man's box and then went back again to your seat unless you wanted to receive communion <clears throat> in which case you'd, you lingered in the chancel and of course, week after week after week, the, the priest would find no one lingered. And it couldn't, um, because as I say, they were, it just wasn't their practice. Um, and they knew the way to do things much better than the Parliament did. So although they went along with the right, uh, they weren't going to linger. And of course, <coughs> this meant you couldn't hold a Eucharist. Cranmer was very clear, we were not going to have private masses. We were not going to have masses with just the priest alone doing his thing it had to be to, to, for the people to receive or you didn't have it so if no one was waiting behind you finished um, as far as the uh, Eucharist was concerned you had an anti-communion and that was it but Dropping an off a coin in the uh, in the poor man's box was that the priest was going to offer 
the mass on their behalf. So they yeah. were used to that practice. They didn't take the elements. They were just waiting for someone to do that for them, to be the priest between yes. them. Uh, yes, I should have made it. Remember I said in 1548, he inserted a communion of the people. Well, he had to do that because the people didn't receive right. until the, the mass didn't even provide didn't even provide for them to receive. Why but the people, where the disconnect was between the people saying, "Well, I don't, I don't take mass on Good Friday or on Easter." I don't. Yeah, yes, they take it on. Oh, that's, that's right. That's, that's when some invitation would be made and they would receive communion. But otherwise, you had to be at mass each week, but you were not expected to receive. Um, the 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 mass was, as I say, the offering of the, the um, transubstantiation and adoration, um, and you'd all um, kneel be, uh, before, uh, at the point of it happening, and the offering of the body and blood of Christ to God on behalf of something. Um, <clears throat> but the idea was there for people to receive, uh, no, that was a bit odd. <laughs> Um, it, the action was complete when the priest had received, who of course he did, who did receive in both kinds. So, so here you've got the attempt to get the people to receive and the text by which they're going to do it if they do it. <coughs> and you'll, you'll find, um, the rubrics again in the middle of page 12, uh, to tell you, to have the, have him then taking as much bread and wine as shall suffice. And he leads on then into what we would call the Eucharistic prayer. Lift up your hearts, we lift them to the Lord, and so on. And and then his his Eucharistic prayer again matches the Roman Catholic one, but changes the things that are said. Quite apart from being totally different to here, because it's now in English, whereas previously it had been in Latin and was usually said silently anyway. The priest just got on muttering in his own, and the people uh, just. Got on with their own thinking or their own praying, and they might be praying their own beads, as is all irrelevant to the actual text of the Mass. Now he's got a text they want to go with, and the, the first major part of the Eucharistic prayer is a prayer for the Church. And you found that down the bottom of page, the, most of page 13 is, a, is proper's um, particular seasons of the year. You slip in before you come to the Sanctus. Can you see um, ten lines up from the bottom of page 13? There's the holy, holy, holy Lord God of hosts. Which the, Whether the people joined in that or not, I don't know. Very often I think I suspect they didn't, but they might have been learning it and doing so. There's one point where there might have been congregational um, saying together. And then, and then on from that, let us pray for the whole state of Christ's church and the petitions follow. Now, in the Roman Mass, this was all petitions, but it was all offering the oblation on behalf of kings, governments, local schools, whatever else it might be. Very long text, and including prayer for the dead. And there is here a reduced prayer for the dead. Um, halfway down page 14, you'll find a Sentence which starts on the right hand margin. <coughs> we commend unto thy mercy, O Lord, all other thy servants who have departed the hence from us the sign of faith, and now do rest in the sleep of peace. Grant unto them, we beseech thee, thy mercy and everlasting peace, and that the date of the general resurrection they may rise, you see. So there's a prayer for peace for them, 
but of a very much reduced character. And really no geography of purgatory or the particular stages you might be at in it. Or the length of time it might take. No hint of any of that, really. And um, on from that, at the bottom of page 14, you pass into the genuinely sacramental part. And here you get the very distinctive Cranmer... <coughs> Oh, Heavenly Father, of thy tender mercy didst give thine only Son, Jesus Christ, to suffer death upon the cross for our redemption, <coughs> who made there, by his one oblation once offered, a full, perfect and sufficient sacrifice, oblation and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world, and instituted in his holy gospel command us to, to celebrate a perpetual memory of that his precious death until his coming again, Hear us, O merciful Father, we humbly beseech thee, oh, sorry, we beseech thee, and, and with thy Holy Spirit and word, vouchsafe to bless and sanctify these thy gifts, and creatures of bread and wine, that they may be unto us the body and blood of thy most dearly beloved Son, Jesus Christ, who in the same night that he was betrayed, took bread, <coughs> and the narrative of institution comes with... Um, could somebody get me a glass of water? I'm sorry, I'm not even... Oh, it's here. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I may do a bit better then. Yes, <coughs> thanks. <coughs> well, we nowadays have call indented rubrics. I hear extended ones. They're in the margin um, about picking up the bread and picking up the cup at the top of page 15. And this is the intriguing question that gave me the title to my book, What Did Cranmer Think He Was Doing? Because Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. And the key issue is, what did Jesus want us to do? And the Roman Catholic answer in the, uh, in the next paragraph, and the paragraph following the narrative is known as the anamnesis paragraph, because it is responding to Jesus saying, do this, in for the remembrance of me. So what did he want us to do in remembrance of him? And I said, the Roman Catholic answer was, we offer unto thee the pure victim, the holy victim, the unspotted victim. Is that what the institution of the Lord's Supper was about? Well, Cranmer certainly it isn't. So what's he going to write here? And you have the most complicated English sentence you can imagine, <coughs> which must have been sheer misery to any priest trying to say it. <laughs> but if you look at it, if you try and unpick it carefully, you'll get there. Wherefore, O Lord and Heavenly Father, according to the institution of my beloved son, dear beloved son, now, Saviour Jesus Christ, we, thy humble servants, do celebrate and make here before thy divine majesty, with these thy holy gifts, the memorial which thy Son hath willed us to make, having in remembrance his blessed passion, mighty resurrection and glorious ascension, rendering unto thee most hearty thanks to the benefits procured in us by the same, entirely desiring thy fatherly goodness, mercifully to accept this our sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, most humbly beseeching to grant that by the merits and death of thy Son, Jesus Christ, and to <coughs> grant that by the and through faith in his blood, we and all thy whole church may obtain remission of our sins and all other benefits of his passion. And that's where the full stop comes. 
and, and but at the heart of it, he's actually said, we are going to, this is about the fourth line of it, we make here before thy divine majesty the memorial which thy son hath willed us to make. <coughs> and I put it to you, that was hold, language holding ground. It wasn't resolving an issue, it was holding the, holding the argument. What he's actually saying when you unpack it is, whatever Jesus wanted us to do, that's what we're doing. <laughs> but without, but didn't unpack it. The memorial which thy son has willed us to make, that, that's what we want to do. Rather like we have nowadays in, in, um, ecumenical circles about praying for the unity which Jesus wanted for, wanted from us when we're not quite sure actually what we want. <laughs> Um, and uh, so that was a very cunning phrase but I think it, <coughs> with the benefit of hindsight you can see it was uh, going to be short lived <coughs> and then instead of offering the sacrifice of Christ we offer unto thee O Lord ourselves our souls and bodies to be a reasonable holy and lively sacrifice unto thee and there is just set up here a contrast that's worth noting for theological reasons if you go back to the bottom of page 14 uh, and the cross of Christ Jesus made there third line down of, of the paragraph uh, about the cross who made there a full perfect and sufficient sacrifice are you with me? and to come over here and exactly halfway down page 15 you'll find and here we offer unto thee ourselves so there's a very clear distinction being made between his atoning sacrifice and our responsive one of ourselves. <coughs> and then he goes on um, with the Lord's Prayer, which traditionally followed the Eucharistic Prayer. Um, and um, he, he's actually got, slipped in, there's a peace of the Lord be always with you, but that the... Um, Response, you see, comes from the clerks, or, or nowadays it'd be servers or something of that sort. Uh, it wasn't the congregational piece that we have nowadays at all. And then a little text called Christ our Paschal Lamb, which was unique to his 1549 book. But then go over the page, and everything from 1548 is now incorporated into the Eucharistic text. Can you see? P -p <coughs> top, of page <coughs> top of page 16, you that truly and earnestly repent of your sins following it the confession, following that the absolution, following that the comfortable words, and following that the humble access before you come to receive communion. So it matches the pattern that the old mass had had, particularly when it had the 1548 insertion put into it. Are you all happy with that? Um, because I'm going to assume you've got hold of it before we go on to the next stage. Uh, <clears throat> there are post there's a post-communion prayer of thanksgiving on page 18 you, uh, we go past all those sentences <coughs> and, uh, and there's a blessing again and, uh, and then there's a you'll notice this, this, at the top of page 19 Collects to be said after the offertory when there is no communion, and that you see was a very normal thing. In fact, happened that there were no there'd be no communion because many many Sundays, and but there are extra collects then to be said. Yeah. 
and on page 20 you've got a very large number of rubrical directions which I don't think I need to stop on though each of them has their own interest because I want to get to 1552 it's very clear to me and I try, again I tried to settle out in my book that, that Cranmer wrote 1549 knowing he was going to change it again and that I think was built into the quotation I gave you from the introduction to 1548 that we shall from time to time labour further for the Reformation. So 1552 was in the offing and was probably even being drafted uh, in Cranmer's mind or on his, in his study when 1549 came out. And the interesting question there is, you see, what did Jesus want us to do? It's an action, the sacrament. What did he want us to do? And it seems to be very clear indeed from Cranmer's disputations on the one hand, quite apart from his liturgical text, he's very clear that what Jesus wants us to do is to eat and drink. <laughs> you might think that's fairly obvious, but it took a lot of debating. <clears throat> so therefore, he, he's gonna, when he rewrites the, <coughs> the Eucharistic prayer, instead of saying we make the memorial which Jesus willed us to make, He's going to draft something that says something like this. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Wherefore, O Lord, in remembrance of his death and passion and, and so on, we'd eat this bread and drink this cup until he comes. Something of that sort. But, but my speculation is he wrote that down and he said, oh, don't let's just say it, let's do it. So that he then broke off all the end of the Eucharistic prayer and put the distribution immediately following do this in remembrance of me. Well, do this and we do it. And interestingly, took up the remembrance words into the distribution. So instead of now saying the body of our Lord Jesus Christ was given for thee, preserve thy body and soul unto everlasting life, he, he said, take and eat this in remembrance that Christ died for thee. And, and so he had an anamnesis, not in a presidential text, but in the distribution words. Um, and, um, and in theory... Uh, it would get, it would come straight on from him saying Jesus saying do this and remember me. There's no, there's no not even an amen. We're going to look at it in a minute, um, and and there's no necessary business of people having to move about to receive. When when the text um, at earlier point says draw near with faith, it doesn't mean get out of your seats. Do you think it does? Because it actually says meekly kneeling upon your knees, which makes getting out of your seat quite difficult. Um, no, it's, it's from the Epistle of the Hebrews. You can read my booklet on the worship of the Epistle of Hebrews. Um, <clears throat> that <clears throat> we'd have drawn near to the throne of faith, the throne of grace by faith. And that's, I'm sure, what Cranmer meant. Although generations of Anglicans have been sure it meant get out of your seats and come to the front. They didn't have a front. They had a movable trestle table or ping pong table or something in a church that hadn't otherwise got pews and the people were around it so that you would actually actually be able to say Jesus said do this and remember me now take this and the no Anglican prayer book has ever included anything about the people having to move it, it, it is local custom everywhere uh, and of course, it's understandable too. You've got two or three hundred people, but it, it, but it is it is not of commandment. It is of convenience, um, and it doesn't it isn't what draw near means.
So let's then have a look at the 1552 right. So I want you to start actually in the middle. In the, and starting in the middle actually means on page um, 30. And you'll find he starts <coughs> the prayer, which I think we'll have for the moment to call the sacramental prayer, um, because he because he hasn't got a he hasn't got a consecration, and the sacramental prayer therefore starts as it did in 1549. Uh, the heavenly Father, with all the tender mercy, gave the Son to, to make a suffer death upon the cross for our redemption, um, and it's more or less as it was in 1549. Though there's no mention of the Holy Spirit, but there is a change in the petition for the meaning of the action. In 1549, the prayer was that the bread and wine may be unto us the body and blood of Christ. Here, look at it. <coughs> Against the right-hand margin, about six lines down, you'll find here, that's for starting there. Hear us, O merciful Father, we beseech thee, and grant that we, receiving these thy creatures of bread and wine, according to thy Son, our Saviour, Jesus Christ's holy institution, in remembrance of his death and passion, may be partakers of his most blessed body and blood. Uh, that is the nearest thing to an epiclesis, if that word means anything to you, a calling upon God to effect what the sacrament is about. But it terminates on the recipient, not on the bread and wine. So there's a, so a real shift of emphasis in so doing. And, it, and in passing, it emphasizes that what we receive are God's creatures of bread and wine. Uh, whatever, however you understand their value or their meaning, they are still bread and wine and are clearly stated to be such. Uh, one other tiny little thing you might notice in, in that text... Um, <clears throat> oh, actually, yeah, I've, I've, I've gone down too far. Go back to where it started, and the um, the fifth and sixth line in his holy gospel commanded us to continue a perpetual memory of that his precious death until his coming again. Now, that wasn't in the Roman rite, about Jesus coming again, and it wasn't actually a matter of dispute. But it seems to be very clear that, that simply that Cranmer was reading St. Paul saying, whenever we eat the bread and drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Oh, yeah, put it in. So you get reference, uh, reference to the second coming attached to the crucifixion without ever mentioning the resurrection or the ascension. Uh, the, uh, you have to take them for granted, which you can do. Um, but they're not there in, in the text. And then you get the narrative institution, and now he's got no indented rubrics. There's no manipulation of the elements. The um, narrative is, is simply the warrant for our receiving the bread and wine. And there is no consecration. It isn't called a prayer of consecration. The bread and wine are not being handled as though something were happening to them. And you'll find in the later rubrics that um, if there's any left after, uh, after, the curate can take it home for his own use. Um, th there's no, rem no consecrated remains you haven't received. And there's no provision for supplementary consecration uh, if you run out 
I think it actually, I think Cranmer actually just thought you'd just take some more bread and wine and put it on the table. Just as you would at home, of course, you get guests. You wouldn't say, well, I've got to get some more than kitchen, so we'll stop and say grace again. <laughs> you just add, and, and, I, and I think that's what Cranmer, I think, I think that's what, <coughs> what Cranmer was intending here. <coughs> now, in putting the distribution, then tied up against the, um, the narrative institution as he has here, he's left himself with a vast amount of stuff in the 1549 right that has gone loose. So what did he do with it? Well, the prayers that were in the, um, had actually come in the earlier part, but he's going to, he's moved them out into the anti-communion so that when there isn't a communion there is still is prayer whereas previously the great length of prayers in the, in the Eucharistic prayer would just wouldn't be happening when there wasn't a Eucharist so, so he takes all that out um, he puts before communion on page 28 most of the preparation so you'll see at the, near the top of page 28 <coughs> Much further back in the service, in other words, not so near the time distribution, you've got the you that truly and earnestly repent, you've got the um, confession, you've got the absolution, and you've got the comfortable words. You haven't got humble access. So where's humble access gone? And the answer, of course, is it's gone at the top of page 30 after the sanctus into what you and I call the Eucharistic prayer, he's inserted a prayer of humble access. Now, from his point of view, there's a great gaping gap there because he'd moved the intercessions out. But from the point of view of 20th century liturgists, it was an extraordinary distortion of what ought to be a Eucharistic prayer. But I think the reason is this. First of all, he'd written this stuff and he really thought it was appropriate to the Eucharist. So where's it going to go? He isn't going to have it last thing before communion because he wants, as I say, to have this transition. Do this, we're doing it. <coughs> but what he has got, he's got the angel's song. Now when Isaiah got his vision in the temple uh, of the angels singing, what was Isaiah's response? Woe is unto me, I'm a man of unclean lips, you know. We do not presume to come to this side table merciful or trusting in our own righteousness. And humble access from his point of view was the exactly appropriate response to the angel's song. So there it is. Um, <clears throat> and the other bits that got um, cut out from earlier are the Lord's Prayer, which comes immediately after the administration. You can see that down the bottom of page 30, just by rubric, the Lord's Prayer. And the self-offering has now become an alternative post-communion prayer on page 31 um, halfway down the first prayer at the top of page 31 you'll find here we often present unto thee O Lord ourselves, our souls and bodies to be a reasonable holy and large sacrifice and you can see whether he'd thought of this before in 1549 I don't know but you can see that it's actually a much more appropriate place then in the Eucharistic prayer, it is responding to the grace of God received in communion. Uh, and the self-offering in response um, very much characterizes what the finished work he was doing here. And he's also moved into the post-communion 
the uh, glory in Excelsis, you see down near the bottom of page 31, which uh, doesn't have any great doctrinal reason to it, um, but maybe because he'd read in Matthew's Gospel that after the Lord's Supper, the, the Last Supper, they sang a hymn. Ah, we've got a hymn. We'll put, <laughs> so, so they move it and put it there. But no, no one actually knows the reason. Um, and then you have the blessing. And, um, and that is the new rite. That, that's 1552. And um, one or two features you might like to look at in the final rubrics. The fifth one, that's on, uh, on page 33, on the inside back cover. To take away the superstition which any person hath or might have, the bread and wine shall, suff it shall suffice that the bread and wine be such as be usual to be eaten at table with other meats. The best and purest white bread, best, purest wheat bread that, that can be gotten. The wafer has gone. And not only gone, it's been, might have been an occasion of superstition. <laughs> um, and you're going to have ordinary bread. Alright? And then, and, and then if you continue, if any of the bread and wine remain, the cure shall have it to his own use. So, there is no objective consecration of the bread and wine. If you want to, if you want to have a concept, then you, consecration occurs at reception. <laughs> that which is received is, is consecrated for you. <laughs> and that which is not received is never consecrated at all. Go, goes, goes home for breakfast. And, um, and that one's worth taking your board. Now you've also got, on the top of page 33, the thing that's been known as the black rubric, which has a particular history to it. Um... 1552 requires the people to receive bread and wine kneeling, which, curious enough, 1549 hadn't. And, um, it, it, and that may be just sheer kind of administrative oversight. There was no, there was no particular intention. But, John Knox, the Scottish reformer, preached in front of the king and said the requirement to kneel to the communion showed the, the idolatry and adoration of the, of the sacramental elements. You know, and, and it was a blasphemy that shouldn't be happening. This was before the, when the book had been authorised by Parliament, before it was actually being printed, uh, and was in the common arena. And the council slipped in this long rubric at the, um, at the top of page 33, which is generally known as the black rubric, which said, said it's a, virtually says we're kneeling all the way through the service anyway. It's only meant to show our humility before God and no adoration of the bread and wine um, can possibly be intended. And indeed, this is the, um, if you look at the last sentence of it, the, um, last, it says the bread, the, the body of Jesus, blood and Christ are in heaven and not here. <laughs> and it's being against the truth of Christ's natural body to be in two places at once, so that's it. Um, whether John Knox was satisfied, I don't know. And you'll know there's a hundred years of dissatisfaction from the Puritan parts of England um, thereafter being required to kneel to receive communion. And it was one of the elements in the um, ejection of the Puritans in 1662. Um, but, but, but that's how they went about answering it. Uh, you're, you're not to think that kneeling 
in fact, whilst receiving communion, is of itself anything like adoration of Christ present in the sacrament. Now, I have reached page 33. I've told you most of the things I know, which I hope you'll find set out in a better order in my book. Um, And you haven't interrupted much, but what do you want to say? What what needs underlining or re-explaining? I have a question, um, back to the prayers for the monarch. Did Henry have any sense of Caesaropapism or Charlemagne kind of in his mind, like thinking back to the rooting of the monarchy as the head of the church? Or was it just a convenient moment in that sense politically? All over Europe, really, the monarchs were deciding what the religion should be of their people. And it was taken as a kind of cue, uh, quius regio ilius religio. Um, but whatever you thought of it as a principle, if it gave you your opportunity in Edward's reign, you took it. Yeah. It was all thrown back against Prince Cranmer when he came onto trial in Mary's reign. You have always said that the monarch's word goes. Now what about it? Uh, and then he then he had really to. to plead the scriptures in his private conscience in a way that he he, he really would have been excluded by his own utterances earlier years. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Whether he... Whether they could foresee that Mary might come in, I don't know, because they had their own plot when the time came of of Lady Jane Grey and just hoped to to continue with a Protestant succession. Um, Does anyone go near... Anyone near answering your question? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. The, the thing the thing took further shape in the English monarchy when James II inherited as a papist and that created the glorious revolution in which he was run off the throne and William and Mary came on and from then for um, for um, over 200 years the monarch at his coronation or hers Forswore transubstantiation. Um, it was only in the 20th century that, that um, George V objected to it, and the Parliament changed the requirement. But but the one thing a monarch of England cannot be is a Roman Catholic. You can be sort of unbelieving as you like, oh, as long as you say the right things at the right moments, you know. Um, yes, Andrew. What has been I mean, isn't an appeal to the practice of the early church, but the words of institution are words of distribution. Jesus took yeah, yeah, and yeah, gave yeah, it to yeah, his disciples. Yeah, yeah. And so why was it the propensity and the development of the liturgy to create such a significant space from the words of institution, which are words of distribution, to the actual distribution? Well, I don't think anybody ever created it. And of course, the thing that the Cranmer doesn't take account of, which we, which you do nowadays, is the narrative institution. If you follow it in order, Jesus gave thanks. And what this doesn't allow for is a thanksgiving. And what our Eucharistic prayers nowadays are, are thanksgivings. That's the idea. You're giving thanks over the bread and cup. And the role of the narrative is as a warrant text 
it's a way in which as we're we're all reassured it is the Lord's Supper we come to and not something else with some religious overtones um, it pins it down now I don't think it's necessarily the best way of doing it but um, for instance if you go to the Church of North India which includes the Presbyterians in the Union you'll find you can have a situation where the narrative institution is read somewhat earlier as the warrant for what we now do and then you go on with a thanksgiving that doesn't have the narrative in it. And of course, if you really want to go to the scriptures, you will have separate thanksgivings over the bread and the cup at separate points in a meal. <laughs> and I occasionally do that. Um, though it's quite difficult writing the separate prayers for the bread and the cup that, that give them, as it were, dis such distinct meanings you were saying di different things. That in passing, that's... That, that, that's uh, something for a very occasional conference or something um, but but that's the role of the narrative and in and in the American right you've had this extraordinary business really you've had a, an epiclesis after the narrative you have you've got the narrative anamnesis epiclesis are you with me folk uh, you know what I'm define, talking about define an epiclesis for folks. well the epiclesis is the calling upon God in effect to do what's necessary with the bread and wine. Um, it, it, and I've said to you that you've got, you've got one here in Cranmer, but, it, but there's a kind of purist notion that it isn't really an epiclesis unless it mentions the Spirit. Um, those of us who are happy with Cranmer's text will say you, have, you haven't got to mention the Spirit for the Spirit to be at work in what you're doing. Um, but the point I'm trying to make is that the prayer that the bread and wine should be to us, the body and blood of Christ, comes in the Roman, in the American rite from the Scottish ancestry after the narrative institution. So it clearly, you cannot think that the narrative institution is the, the place that does it. And yet actually you've always had these intended rubrics, haven't you? you you're supposed to manipulate the elements when you don't actually think it affects anything. Um, there seems to be a, something paradoxical about the American rite in that respect. Um, I haven't come here to criticise the American right, but I haven't detected enormous love of it when I've come here. <laughs> because you're at a point where you say, well, there are there ways we could do things better? And talking to the bishop this morning, it, it sounds as though there's liberty to try and do things better. Now, I'm supposed to talk about Cranmer, so are there more questions in the Cranmer area? Tease out for us with me the obvious the answer to your the question you posed, what did Cranmer think he was doing? Mm -hmm. And the answer you've given us, the good answer, is he's telling us to, to eat and drink. Yes. Yes, did. yes. As so simple as that. Tease out, you know, what what climax does he do? You, you sort of impregnated a question. What did Cranmer think he was doing? To eat and drink. Why? What's happening when we eat? Oh, I see. What's, 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 well, well, clearly, you're eating the bread and drinking the wine with the significance of the body and blood of Christ, and that, and that is, you know, quite strongly put in the in the hum, in humble access. Grant that we. Uh, uh, let me make sure I quote the text right. I, my mind is addling. Grant us, therefore, gracious Lord, so to eat the flesh of thy dear Son Jesus Christ and to drink His blood that our sinful bodies, you know. Um, and, and so he, he isn't worried about saying we eat the body of Christ and we drink his blood what's, what's going to worry him is saying that they are the body and blood of Christ independent of our eating them 
so you can reserve them and, and, and adore them. But in, in reception, I, th- I, th- I put it to you that the way he's understanding is the way we would understand conveyancing. Now, I'm not a lawyer, but in England you, you convey property um, and you convey it with deeds or something of that sort. And you don't look at the deeds and ask whether they've been built of stone or something like that. You, um, but passing over the deeds really conveys to the right people that which it signifies. And that, I think, is what you're seeing, is the conveying the benefits of the death of Christ to the right recipients. Now, it's backed up in the 39 articles by Article 29, which got inserted in Elizabeth's reign, which says that the wicked do not receive the body and blood of Christ, although they press with their teeth the outward and visible sign. That the inward sign is separable, some of the inward meaning, inward grace is separable from the outward sign. It's not separable from the grace of God. So that, uh, whereas in Rome, the outward sign and the inward grace are inseparable, um, but you, you, you may receive the grace to your own condemnation. It's, you, uh, um, and because you inevitably do receive the body and blood of Christ on any doctrine like transubstantiation. And, and Cranmer has fought that one very hard. Grant that we receiving may be partakers of his most body and blood. That, that's the conveyancing concept. Um, so would it be accurate going to say uh, that we don't feed on Christ with our mouths and digest him in our bellies but we feed upon him spiritually and digest him in our hearts yeah yeah that's fair enough yes um, and yet um, see in the circle copyrighted and yet you know, we are commanded to do this, and this is the significance, and we look to benefit by the grace of God through the, through the consumption, yes, and all of the implications that has for us. And you'll recall, I mean, the very strong words of Jesus in John chapter 6, that um, who, you have to eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood to have eternal life. Um, which I say won't, won't square with Roman doctrine at all, is very strong, but must have been understood by the recipients. So, I mean, John's writing in the last ten years of the first century AD, so his readers will already be weekly communicants. Uh, so they, can, they must understand this, it seems to me, in terms of the Lord's Supper that they're already participating in, when they find Jesus making these very strong statements in the exposition that follows the feeding of the 5,000. So would you say then that, that Cranmer, although he's concerned with superstition and Roman Catholic doctrine, his overarching concern is actually increasing the devotion of the people and having them understand the gospel, which actually makes the Holy Communion more significant than it was even for them under Rome. Oh, I'll go with that, yes. Um, <laughs> yes, um, he's, what he's conscious of is Jesus saying, do this. So there's a sense in which he wants to say, yes, we must do this, 
and work at what it means as we go along, almost. What we mustn't do is say we're not going to do it. Um, it it's for the priests only or something like that, which is how the, the pattern had developed. Well, he he wanted... On, sorry. On that point right there, I think it answers Gil's question a little bit in that, it's in that by putting the emphasis on eating and drinking, mm-hmm. well, whether, whether we eat it outwardly as a sign of something that's more profound that happens inwardly by faith, the fact that we're eating it and drinking it ourselves means that there's no priest that's a middleman anymore. He's, he can't chew it for us. He can't swallow it for us. He can't drink it for us. And and, and so it, it takes out the middleman. And I, that, that, could that be part of what he thought he was doing too? Yes. I mean, I think... I think he'd still want to say, well, I want the, I want the ministers to be, to be ministering it to you. I don't want you to go off into, into private homes and start doing it uh, of your own accord, which, of course, uh, the latter years have often seen happening. Um, he's got a very strong church discipline he wants to exercise. But yes, he wants to, to enlighten them with the gospel as they go along, and his gospel kind of words all the way through. Bonavice himself once offered is, for us, you know, is, if we, if we can take it aboard, it's, it's amazing. Uh, and, and you certainly wants that kind of thing to happen. And I think one of the features of the bread and wine is it gives us a specific moment. You're going to have to go, uh, as a repentant sinner, you're going to have to go in love and charity with your neighbour. You, you can't just drift along and, and sort of wait to put these things right another time. The famous uh, um, conversion of Charles Simeon, does that mean anything to you? See, he was he was ordained. I think. It was required as a fellow of a college to go to communion, and it got him. He, ah, you know, and he was converted going to communion. Um, uh, now I don't. And, and John Wesley used to talk about the, the communion as a converting order. It didn't mean you you practice mission by setting up communion services all around the place. He meant, as a matter of fact, people who come to it get hit. <laughs> there is one kind of footnote I ought to add, I don't know if time allows, which is what happened to this text afterwards. Um, is that fair enough? For, who's in charge of me, Andrew? Can, can have a go, can, I mean, from you see, we've only got you here for, for a couple more days, so please proceed. Yeah, but you're entitled to have me talking for two days if you want to, you know. <laughs> so it's, it's rather it's other people's needs I'm thinking about. What happened to this text? Well. Of course, it was abolished in in Mary's reign. Um, some of the folk who went into exile on the continent took it with them there, and and fiddled with it. Sometimes they claimed that now my Lord of Canterbury had another book a hundred times more perfect waiting in the wings. But that may have been mere propaganda. We don't. No one's ever found the book a hundred times more perfect. Um, <laughs> Oh, I'd have to check it out offhand. It's, it's one. It's in. It's in the reasonable Strasbourg um, or North Germany one folk, not the Swiss ones. Um, and um, and then, lo and behold, in the providence of God, Queen Mary and her Archbishop die in the same night, in 1558. Uh, Elizabeth comes to the throne, and for whatever reason. She's going to be a Protestant. Um, she's been waiting in the wings. She's been in, probably been in danger of assassination, actually, um, because Mary had no offspring. 
and, and she's the next heir. Anyway, she comes in and they produce a new act of uniformity which restores the 1552 book without even putting it, putting it into the act. Just the, the book as it was in the act of 1552 um, with one or two small changes. And one of the changes is they put the words of distribution together, 1549 and 1552. So now, when you distribute, you're supposed to say to each communicant, the body of our Lord Jesus Christ was given for thee, preserve thy body and soul unto everlasting life. Take and eat this in remembrance that Christ died for thee and feel him in thy heart by faith with thanksgiving. I personally think the Queen got that in. Say no minister who had to say it would ever have done it. And no lay person was in position to require it except the Queen. And we know from her own little um, doggled tag that you may have come across, we know she liked the, you, talking about the body of Christ. And I think she wanted to hear the body of Christ. So they, they slipped that in as well. Which actually broke the sequence of do this in remembrance of me, take and eat this in remembrance. So it was just a minor re, retouching of it. Um, and they left out the black rubric. Um, now, again, that may have been totally inadvertent in the sense that it hadn't been in the book that was annexed to the Act in 1552. Remember, it was slipped in by, in, by order of council later. So the mere reviving the book that was in the Act may simply have meant that when the printers came to it, it wasn't there uh, and, and they printed it without. So there was no black rubric in Elizabeth's reign. And the Puritans, uh, who became very threatening to her, really, you know, they were demanding that we should not require people to do things that were not there in Scripture. Kneeling for communion, ring in marriage, sign of the cross in baptism, and wearing the surplus. They were the great accepted ceremonies. So on the one hand, she still had to deal with Rome, because the Pope excommunicated her and said that whoever killed her did God's service, which meant every Roman Catholic was immediately a traitor. Uh, and the Roman Catholic martyrs of Elizabeth's reign were actually martyred not for their religion, but for their treason. <laughs> um, it doesn't make much difference, I think, to people who had to go through it. Um, but, the, uh, but the Puritans were all the time pressing for a more thorough reformation. But very interestingly, and this is, uh, I've written up a bit in a book that I've got published, of which I'm hoping to have copies tomorrow, um, about modern Anglican Roman Catholic agreements on the Eucharist. Um, the copies are on the way here to me this minute and they are trying to write up the fact that although the Puritans objected to those ceremonies there's no objection to any of the text of Cranmer's rite although they suspected the management of being still half Roman in the things of the ceremonies they never suggest that the text leans towards Rome at all which they would have done for you know the slightest chance because they of that frame of mind we're going to go looking for trouble. And they never found any trouble in this text. Uh, in the canons of 1604, it said that if you run out of bread and wine, you must read the narrative institution over any more that you take. So you're just starting to get a, a suggestion. It isn't, the word isn't used, but a suggestion of separately consecrated bread and wine. And when after the Civil War... We had one in England long before you had one. Uh, it, after the Civil War in the mid-17th century, when it came to the Savoy Conference afterwards, um, the Puritans asked for the consecration to be made more explicit. And the, the bishops hit upon that and did it, though not in the way the Puritans wanted, I don't think. 
but they've then put in rubrics about picking up the bread and cup and laying a hand on them during the narrative institution, rubrics about consuming the consecrated remains at the end of the service, rubrics about supplementary consecration if you ran out during the bread and wine, and the concept of an objective consecration was there. Now, that is not, to my mind, in any way to depart from the theology. It seems entirely appropriate to designate elements to take this particular role within our service. Um, so I've no great problem about consecration, but it was a change of the style or, or the nature of Cranmer's life. The text remained exactly the same, but the rubrics now have, have brought a doctrine of consecration, objective consecration upon them. But ob objective consecration, as I say, is not of itself a sellout to Rome. And I'm always very keen indeed, and you'll find I've got a booklet about consecration there, that we should keep two questions absolutely distinct in your mind. And they're very easy to remember. One is, what effects consecration? And the other is, what does consecration effect? <laughs> got it? The, the, um, so when you, if you decide that consecration effects a, a redesignation of the purpose of using the bread and wine, then you haven't changed the nature of the bread and wine at all. Um, and so that's part of it. But if you also, but a different question is what effects consecration? And here in 1662, they had moved into, if you like, a Roman pattern of what effects without having moved into a Roman pattern of what consecration effects. Um, can you follow me on that one? And of course, in latter days, obviously the American, Scottish American tradition really says the epiclesis, the calling upon the Spirit, is what effects consecration. Um, and, and the more recent thing he has been to, just to say the whole Eucharistic prayer consecrates. We'll say the whole Eucharistic prayer, and then we'll treat the bread and wine as consecrated without having specified a particular formula or a particular moment that does consecrate. I think that's the kind of footnoting I wanted to offer. It's, it's two pages in my booklet, um, but but you but you still have in England the um, the authoritative Eucharistic rite of 1662, which is at virtually every point exactly what Cranmer drafted in 1552. And you know, some of us love it, even though we know it is now dated in its language and 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 is not sufficient as the main fare of Sunday mornings. Sir. Okay. Well, Bishop Black, you for being with us. Yeah. <laughs> there are lots of uh, cookies and, and things like that over there, and uh, feel free uh, to mingle. Uh, Fonte and Lee Pope have said they'll stay here all night. books. <laughs> <laughs> I should be standing by my bookstall, and I hope you'll all now do the honest thing with the books in your hands. Oh. Well, we go to Cranmer. The peace of God which passes all understanding. Keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God and of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, and the blessing of God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, 
be amongst you and remain with you always. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.